We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson Preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi And now, Mike Hickson There are a lot of people in our world today that know about Jesus They know about His teaching, about His life some of the great things that he did during his earthly ministry. But what does it mean to live for him? To live for Jesus day in, day out, week in, week out, year by year. There are three things I think Jesus discusses in Luke chapter 14 that relate to living for him. Three what I would call very key or critical words. The first is cost. I want you to begin with me in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. The text tells us that great multitudes went with him. And wherever Jesus went, he seemed to draw a crowd. A lot of folks wanted to be around him. They wanted to be in his presence. Some wanted to be in his presence because of what they had heard or what they might hear. Others wanted to be in the presence of Jesus to see him perform some great miracle. And so... Among this great multitude of people, here's what Jesus said as he begins talking about the cost of discipleship. If anyone comes to me and does not hate or love less his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. When you look at the cost of discipleship and what Jesus is saying here, there are a couple of things that we ought to think about. First, he addresses our personal relationships. Note again what he said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate or love less father, mother, wife, and children, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying here is that he demands to be number one in life. He accepts nothing less than number one. He's saying that when it comes to love, we are to love him supremely above any and every personal relationship. There have been folks in days gone by that because of family relations, because of those biological ties, have said no to becoming a child of God. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 22 concerning the first and great commandment, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And so giving Him supreme love above any and all others. John would say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. And so when it comes to the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, it affects our personal relationships. And then there is the personal realization that we have to come to. First he talks about our relationships, and then listen to him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate or love less, father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, now listen, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying here is that first and foremost, 
when it comes to being a follower, a disciple of Him, we have to vacate the throne of self. In other words, there are a lot of folks in our world today, it's all about them, and they're in control, and they are the king, so to speak, in their own life. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to follow me, you can't be the king. You can't be the one calling all the shots. Really two words here. First, vacate. Secondly, coronate. We vacate the throne of self and we coronate Jesus as the king of our life. We're saying that the Lord is going to be first before anything else. Think about it this way. We just had presidential election a month from now a little over a month from now we will have what is typically called the presidential inauguration there will be an outgoing president and an incoming president if you want to live for Jesus if you want to be one of his disciples what he's saying is that you are the outgoing president of your own life you've got to vacate that throne you can't be in control you have to coronate Jesus as the Lord of your life. A month and a half from now, President Obama will be a former president. We'll have a new president. When you come to Christ, what Jesus is saying is you're no longer in control. You're not on the throne calling the shots. You're not the king of your life, but rather I am. Jesus, as we say, is Lord. He is the ruler, the one who reigns in our hearts and lives. And then look at verse 27. First he talks about our personal relationships and then he discusses this personal realization that I can't be in control any longer. And then thirdly, our personal responsibility. What responsibility do I have? Look at verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Two things here. First, when we come to Christ, there is a crucifixion. A death takes place. We die to an old way of life. Whatever we were in the past, whatever things that we did in the past, they are just that. They're in the past. When Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Paul here recognized that a death had taken place. A crucifixion. You remember in Galatians 2.20? Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Again, going back to this idea of self-denial. Jesus said, come unto me. He also said, come after me. When we come to Jesus, we come on his terms. When we begin following him, we are a disciple. We are a learner. We're trying to walk in his footsteps, aren't we? And so there is an old way of life that is put in the past. So there is a crucifixion and there is consecration. Consecrating our lives to him who died for us. In verse 27, Jesus said, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So you think about putting Jesus first in your life, making him the Lord of your life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he said, all these things shall be added unto you. So the cost of discipleship, it's going to cost you something to serve the Lord. It might cost you personal relationships. 
It's going to cost you the personal realization that you're no longer in control, that you're taking directions from Jesus, the Son of God. And then it's going to cost you by way of personal responsibility. You are responsible to Jesus. We talk about accountability and responsibility. We are accountable to Jesus. We are responsible to Jesus. And so we're striving to live for Him, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We live for Him who died for us. Now there's a second earmark of living for Jesus identified by the Lord in Luke chapter 14. The first is the cost. Secondly, he talks about how we need to calculate, computate. In other words, you need to calculate how much it's going to cost you to serve him. Some of you have calculators. You may use them every day. And you use those calculators to add, subtract, multiply, divide, etc. Well, sometimes it's good for us to step back and calculate, okay, what are we getting into? Remember when you bought your first home? When you buy an automobile and you sit down and you think about, okay, what is it I'm getting into? When you got married, what is it that is going to be required of me as a mate? I've got to calculate that. I've got to count the cost. So Jesus uses some figures to help us better understand calculating the cost of discipleship. Note, if you would, in verses 28 through 30. He talks about the construction. Which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the, co- count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So he's talking about constructing a building. And he's saying, Look, before you ever begin that project, before you lay the foundation, you need to make sure that you have enough money to complete the project. Now think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus here is saying you need to calculate the cost of discipleship. What's it going to cost you? What's it going to entail to you being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's like building a building, building a house. You need to understand it's going to cost you some things. When you undergo a building project, you've got to have enough money to start the project and you've got to have enough money to finish the project. By the same token, when you become a Christian and you look at your life, you are under construction, aren't you? We're not a finished product. And the question is, do we have what it takes to finish the project? In other words, are we going to stay with it? Are we going to stick to the Lord like we're supposed to? You see, sometimes people, they obey the gospel. And they say, I want to live for Jesus. And then they begin to fade. They don't have what it takes. Trials and temptations and difficulties and discouragement, all of these things weigh heavily on their hearts and they fall away. Sometimes they get ensnared by the world. Remember in James chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus said, Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he has been tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. He's saying, look, you've got to count the cost. When you become a child of God, don't think that all your problems, all your troubles, and all the difficulties that you face in life, they're just going to automatically vanish away. It doesn't work like that. You've got to understand that life is not easy. 
Living for Christ is not necessarily easy. Matter of fact, think about the great multitudes before Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus never tried to conceal what it would be like to be a disciple of his? He was very transparent, very open. Some folks, they like to put things in what we call the fine print, don't they? They talk about all the benefits and the blessings of this product they're trying to sell. And then down in the very tiny print, they have exclusions and this and that. Well, Jesus didn't say, look, if you follow me, you're going to enjoy all these great blessings. But, and then in fine print say, but by the way, there are going to be trials and temptations and difficulties and hardships. And you're going to suffer for my name's sake. No, he didn't do that. Matter of fact, go back to Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, we talk about beginning his ministry. Imagine you're trying to cultivate a multitude of people to follow you, and right off the bat you say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I'm telling you right up front, not going to be an easy life. So do you have what it takes to complete the project? If you began the Christian race and you faltered somewhere along the way, then you didn't count the cost. You never thought about what it would really entail to be one of his disciples. Now there's a second thing he talks about, and that is the conflict. This has to do with the battle. Now we're counting the cost. First, there's a building under construction. Secondly, there is this battle, this conflict. So hear what he has to say. Verse 31. What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus trying to say here? He's saying, look, you want to be one of my disciples? You want to follow me? Are you sure you want to live for me day in and day out? Because you need to understand, the moment you become one of my children, you're at war. You're in battle. You're facing a conflict. That conflict is with the devil. When you're in the world, you belong to the devil. When you come out of the world, Jesus is saying, look, you're mine. And in order to be with me and to live for me, you're going to have to do battle with the devil every single day. So why then do I need to step back and count the cost? Well, the figure here, here's somebody going to war, and he is outnumbered. i got to sit down. Do I have what it takes to win the war, to win the fight, to win the conflict? Peter said, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In verse 9, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter said, whom withstand steadfast in the faith. So here's what you've got to understand. When you calculate the cost of discipleship, and you think about going into battle, going into conflict, there are two things that the Lord is saying you can't afford to do. Number one, you can't afford, you can't afford to be a coward. Sometimes in war, folks bail out because they're afraid. Matter of fact, 
A lot of folks have bailed out because of fear, because they're cowardly. When you become a child of God, you can't be a coward. You've got to take a stand. You've got to take a bold stand for what's right. Will it be popular? Probably not. Would it potentially cost you relations with your family, your friends, your co-workers, your classmate, classmates? Possibly. But you need to understand, you can't afford to be a coward. Sometimes peer pressure can be very, very strong and very real. And when the group, the multitude, moves in one direction and you have to move in another, there is the tendency sometimes to pull down the tent, to give up. In Acts chapters 4 and 5, you, you remember the apostles were commanded not to teach nor preach in the name of Jesus. And how did they respond? Peter said, we cannot but speak the things we've seen and heard. They would later say, we ought to obey God rather than men. It requires being bold, fearless. So, number one, we can't be a coward. Number two, we can't afford to compromise, can we? There are a lot of people in our world today that want us to compromise our message, compromise our lifestyle, compromise what we think. Well, can't afford to do that either, can we? Remember Paul, in writing to the saints at Ephesus, said many, many years ago, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In verse 11 of chapter 5, Paul would say, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That means when folks want you to compromise your beliefs, and you need to know what you believe. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. Because Peter said, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts always. He said, Be ready to give an answer in defense. For those things that you believe in with meekness and fear. So somebody asks you, what do you think? What do you think God's moral code is? Well, here's what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about marriage? Well, here's what Jesus said. I'm not going to water it down. I'm not going to try to suppress it. I'm simply going to hold the line. Say, look, this is what the scriptures teach. I may not like it, you may not like it, but it doesn't change the truth, does it? Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. So here we are at war, and Jesus is saying, you want to be my follower, my disciple? Then you need to understand you're going to be in battle. And it may be the case that the heat is on. And there are folks that are trying to put a lot of pressure on you. You can't afford to be a coward. You can't afford to compromise what you believe. You've got to have a belief system. You've got to know what you believe and why you believe it. Now there's a third thing that Jesus discusses as we talk about living for Him. First, the cost of discipleship. Calculating the cost of discipleship. And then the commission of discipleship. Note if you would verse 34. Jesus said, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, 
nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus is saying is that once you become his disciple, you have a duty. You are duty-bound to be a salty disciple. Now, salt was used in the ancient world for a number of reasons. We use salt today for a number of reasons. One of the primary reasons that salt was used in the ancient world was to preserve food, preserve meat. And Jesus is saying, look, as one of my disciples, as a salty disciple, you are to be a preservative for good in this world. Now we look around and we think about all the chaos and the problems, the declining morals in our country and all the things that are going on. We ask the question, how in the world could I make a difference? Well, you'd be surprised. You remember back in Genesis chapter 18 when God announced to Abraham he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What did Abraham do? He interceded, didn't he, on behalf of those cities. He began to plead with God. If you found so many righteous people in this, in this city, in these cities, would you spare them? And God said, I would. Well, you can be a preservative for good in this country. You. You, like Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, can be an example of the believers in word and in manner of life. That is, in what you say and what you do. The Bible says, Righteousness exalteth a nation. Sin is a reproach unto any people. And so, we can be a preservative for good in this world. There's another use for salt. And that is, it purifies. In other words, it can be used to clean a wound. Many of us have used salt for that very purpose. It has healing properties, doesn't it? Well, are we not a light in this world? Are we not the salt of the earth? Do we not have a message that can ultimately purify the hearts and lives of people? Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22? Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, we have a message that can lead people to a life of purity and peace in Christ, to know that they can have forgiveness of sins. We have that responsibility. Another thing salt's used for, makes things more palatable, doesn't it? In other words, you ever seen people, they sit down to eat, first thing they do, they pick up the salt shaker, don't they? First thing they do, start salting their food. Some folks, it's never salty enough. Well, as a child of God, as a disciple of Jesus, as somebody who's trying to live for Him, the way that you live, does it attract others to Christ? When people see you day in and day out in the classroom, on the job, in the neighborhood, wherever they see you, at the gym, whatever the case may be, and they talk to you and they listen to what you're saying, and they notice that you're positive, upbeat, optimistic, joyful, that there's just something different about the way you live, and they say, you know what, I don't know what you have, but whatever you have, I want it. Isn't that the way we ought to be living? So that when people come to know that we are followers of Jesus, they say, that's the difference. That's what I want. Paul would write to the church at Corinth, and he would say, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You think about how many people in our world today have lives that are broken down, Upside down, 
filled with chaos and misery. They're discouraged. They're beaten down. They're looking for hope. They want peace in their lives, but they don't have any peace. And here you are as a child of God, faithful Christian. And you say, and you say to them, you know what? I was once where you are. And you can have the same thing I have. You can be a child of God. And all your sins can be forgiven. And you can have the peace that passes all understanding in your life. Think about Paul when he wrote to the church at Philippi. And he said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. In chapter 4, he would say, I've learned in whatever state I am in, therein to be content. Are there not people in our world today, they are discontent. They are dissatisfied. They're unhappy. And in their minds, they have all the things the world could, could possibly give them, but they don't have that one ingredient that would make them whole. That's Christianity. We can make the difference. Another thing that salt does, salt can be painful, can't it? You ever had a cut on your lip, your tongue, and you eat something salty? What's it do? Stings, doesn't it? Burns, it hurts. Listen, as a child of God, sometimes what we say, in other words, in our presentation of the gospel, Sometimes it cuts folks up, doesn't it? Cuts them. The gospel is intended to cut the heart, prick the heart. And so when we preach and teach truth, not everybody likes it. Paul asked on one occasion, have I become your enemy? Why, Paul? Because I tell you the truth. You ever made somebody mad because you said, this is what the Bible says? This is what God says? I know there are some people, they don't want to hear what God says. Sometimes you got to make, sometimes you got to hurt people before you can help them. You ever had surgery? You got a problem? Doctor says, I've got a cut on you. It's going to hurt. It's going to take some time to recover. But ultimately, the goal is to heal you, to make you better. We have a message that will cut people to the heart. The intent is not to drive them away, but to bring them to Christ. And how do we do that? With the gospel. The Hebrew writer said the word of God is living and active, listen to him, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Cuts both ways. And it'll cut you up, but it'll do it in a good way. So, the duty of salty saints, salty disciples. What about the danger of being a saltless saint or disciple. Would you listen to what Jesus said? Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. In other words, look, if you're not leavened for good in this world as a disciple of Jesus, you're not helping his cause. You're not helping his cause one bit. And Jesus is saying, look, you're supposed to use your influence for my good. If you're not doing that, then you are counterproductive to the teaching of Jesus. Do you have an influence? I don't care if you're young or old, male or female, rich or poor. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you can be a leavening agent for good in this world. 
So I want to ask you a question. What's it going to cost you to live for Jesus? Could I sum it up in one word? Everything. That's what it's going to cost you. You want to serve Jesus? You want to live for him? It's going to cost you everything. As we say sometimes, lock, stock, barrel. You belong to him. Some of you have been in the military. And you signed on the dotted line. And when you signed on that dotted line, guess what? You are now, you were at that time, the personal property of Uncle Sam. You belong to him, lock, stock, and barrel. And don't try to tell Uncle Sam that you don't belong to him because he'll say, oh, yes, you do. When you become a child of God, you belong to the Lord Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't want, to, I don't want just a piece of you, a slice of pie. I want all of you. Let me put it this way. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. There is no in-between, all or nothing. So I want to ask you today, are you among the all or among the nothing? Are you all in? If you're not all in, you're all out, and you can't afford to be out. So live for him. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love.